0: Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. In this teaching series, entitled Wingman, we will redefine roles, relationships, and our need for others. Week number three in this series called Wingman, talking about relationships, talking about the differences between men and women. Last week we spoke about friendship. How many of you guys were blessed by Pastor Mike Schnepp and his word on friendship? Did you guys... Receive a little bit from that, hopefully you did. If you missed it, it's up online on the podcast, you can catch it. Today we're going to start in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, if you have a Bible you can go there, if not it will be on the screen. The first week we talked about uh, the way that God has wired men and women and the differences between men and women. Last week we looked at friendship, today we're going to take on the topic of singleness, singleness, and so this is crucial not just for the single people in the room, not just for the unmarried people, but for every single person in the room today. This is crucial so that you and I have a biblical, godly understanding of how these dynamics work in real life. And so we're going to start in John chapter 2, maybe a story you've heard before, if you've been around church, maybe it's new to you, but uh, we'll jump right in in verse 1. Are you ready? Yeah? All right. You turn to somebody, just tell them this is going to be good. Come on, just tell them this is going to be good. 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 Okay, good, good, good. Here we go. Verse 1, "...on the third day there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. It said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. If you want to take notes, right at the top of the page, solving my singleness. Solving my singleness. You ready to pray? Jesus, we love you. We open up our hearts to the scriptures today. Jesus, we open up our hearts to your spirit and to your word. I'm asking right now that you supernaturally apply this to each of our lives. God, that for every married person in the room, for every single person in the room, that Jesus, you would do something transformative in our souls today, that you would help us to see ourselves, you would help us to see the world we live in, and more than anything, you'd help us to see you. Come Holy Spirit, I need you, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We are living in an historic time in human history, specifically in the history of the United States of America. This is the first era in american history where single adults outnumber married adults they've been tracking this for years and years and years now and in 2014 the tables finally turned and there are more single adults in the united states than there are married adults for the first time in american history and that number of single adults has been steadily increasing since 1976 and so since 1976 more and more people have chosen to remain single for a longer period of time or for their entire life and so there's been a dramatic shift culturally in an understanding of singleness. Now, it's interesting because, believe it or not, there was a time in history, even in American history, where the church championed singleness and the culture championed Marriage, where there is a pressure in culture to get married and actually a pressure in the church to remain single, believe it or not we 'll unpack that in a minute, but uh, but this has shifted over time, and more and more in our society, the pressure to get married has become less and less powerful, and marriage itself for a lot of individuals has become less and less attractive, and so the idea of marriage when it was once kind of a cultural pressure that people would come of age and then get married has now shifted, and when people are 20 and 21 and 22, it's uncommon for them to consider marriage at that age, and so I remember as a young man, I was 21 years old when I got married, and I had dozens of people pull me aside and say, you are crazy, what are you doing? Now, 30, 40, 50 years ago, no one would have been pulling me aside. But something has shifted in our culture where singleness is far more accepted and even desired. And so marriage has become something that uh, that is less and less attractive culturally, right? And so a person comes out and they say, hey, I'm going to get married, right? And they say, you know, I'm marrying this person. There's a, there's a pressure uh, to not do that, right? And so I'll speak for guys for a minute. For guys, there's a pressure to not get married because marriage is seen as kind of this, this bondage, right? This slavery. You've heard it. It's like, man, ball and chain. Or maybe you you have your bachelor party and, and all the other guys are saying, man, this is your last day of freedom. Like, well, what does it mean after today? Slavery, right? I mean, like, that's the impression in society. So I grabbed just a couple of cartoons to help us get a picture of what people are thinking. Go ahead, throw that first one up there. It says, before marriage, a man yearns for, for the woman he loves. After marriage, the why becomes silent, right? And so uh, that was kind of funny all right anyways and then the, the, the next one go ahead and throw it up so this idea that you know now he's in this bondage to earn for his wife and then here's the marriage counselor this is another just impression culturally of marriage when I told you to set up one evening a week as a date night I meant with each other you know in other words there's this expectation now you ask well why is that funny that's funny because so many married people are not faithful to their spouse Now, if everybody in marriage was faithful to their spouse, that wouldn't really be that funny. But because it's so common... For people in a marriage to not consider that marriage as a binding agreement for one person for all time uh, because that 's not the way it 's often seen, uh, this is funny culturally and so little by little by little, the idea of, of marriage has become more and more attractive, and people are opting into a single life for an extended period of time in our culture now. Dates have also changed through the years. This idea of a date is on the endangered species list right now, okay? There's not too many people going on what would be considered years ago as a traditional date where a man asks a woman to go out and actually plans the date and pays for it. That's like an ancient artifact, right, on the shelf. Now what people do is they kind of flirt over text or they kind of, you know, make a little comment on social media about this or about that, and then they hang out with friends at a, at a restaurant or a, One person described it like this, that the common interactions between male and female relationships is one step below a date and one step above a high five, right? So it's kind of this like, sort of like, and some of the single people can say amen to that, and not that they're thrilled about it. And in place of the ancient idea of a man and a woman going out on a date, and the man taking initiative to prepare for that day, has, uh, you know, what's, what's kind of taken place in the last 30 to 40 years in American culture is what has become commonly known by sociologists as hookup culture, right? Hookup culture is this idea that we can have sex and there's no obligation for any emotional or long-term commitment, right? And so an individual can be intimate physically with someone and there's sort of this social contract that says that doesn't mean that we actually care about one another. It just means that we're going to pleasure ourselves. And so sexual passion becomes something that's incredibly selfish, right? That's about me experiencing a level of pleasure. And so it's almost this, uh, this competition of who can hook up with who. And rather than a committed relationship, what's sort of taken the place is hook up with whoever you can hook up with and experience whatever you can experience. As long as the sex is casual, as long as the commitment is not there, then it's just fine. So there's a glimmer of intimacy, but an emptiness that begins to pervade your experience. And so people are daily, weekly, monthly participating in this. Who can I hook up with? Who who can I connect with, who can I go out with, culture, and what happens little by little, and if you've experienced this reality in college and in your personal life and all in all, on and on and on, what happens little by little is this little emptiness starts to seep in and you start feeling like, is this who I'm supposed to be, is this what it's supposed to be, and little by little, sexual intimacy becomes less and less important or less and less uh, honest, and slowly, this loneliness, this emptiness, this lack of substance makes you pause and say, is this really the way it's supposed to work? Is this really the best that we have to offer in the world of relationship? Is this it? Well, the church has changed over time too. Believe it or not, there was a day where if you were single, you were considered more holy and more godly than if you were married. And I would say that that's probably changed today, but but marriage was kind of seen as for the weak. You know, for those who are weak, get married. For those who are on the jv team get married and for those that are varsity christians varsity followers of jesus remain single commit yourself to celibacy and be fully committed to the lord that's how it was seen for generations and generations and a priesthood and nuns would make a commitment to celibacy still do today in many cultures but and and make this pledge to say this is the holiest way to live and that all changed in 1525 when the leader of the reformation martin luther married a nun Okay, And when he married a nun, he came out and said this to his followers. He said, there's no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. In other words, Martin Luther was saying this is the greatest relationship a person can have. And in that statement, and in his example, the pressure in the church began to change. And now people didn't see singleness as this highly exalted place of spirituality. Instead, they began to see marriage as this highly exalted place of spirituality. And you were more holy or more important or on the varsity team if you were a married Christian, right? And so now the church creates this unspoken cultural pressure pressure to be married, you know, the church and, and mom, right, create this unspoken cultural pressure to be married, and if you're single in the church today, and I'm not speaking of this church specifically, but as a Christian in general, in society, if you're single, there's this sort of kind of unspoken like, so what's going on with that? You got like wicked bad toenail fungus, or I mean, what's the deal? What's, you know, what's wrong with you? How can I help solve your singleness, right? How how can I help solve... You're, you know, what went wrong? I mean, what, what kind of went down? I mean, you're, you're, you're 38, you're not married. I mean, you're a Christian and, and, you know, if you were not a follower of Christ, there would be a pressure almost to remain single except for mom. But now that you are a follower of Christ and you're walking with Jesus, it seems that in the church there's this pressure to say you're missing life if you're not married. You're kind of, you're kind of like junior varsity Jesus follower. Maybe it's because something's wrong with you, Right? Come on, turn to somebody and tell them this is gonna get good. This is gonna get good. It's gonna get good. How do I solve my singleness? Well, Jesus knew the pressures, okay? Jesus knew the pressures. Many people don't realize this, but in Jesus' day, Historically, there was a pressure both from culture and from his community of faith to be married. And so the Jewish tradition was that people would get married very young and the cultural tradition of the day was that people would get married. And so there was both a outside and inside pressure for Jesus to be married. In fact, many rabbis in the days of Jesus taught that if you were 20 years old and you had not pursued marriage and gotten married by 20, you were living in sin. Many people taught that in Jesus' day. And they believe that, listen, your most important responsibility is to pass on the legacy of your name. And if you don't marry, you can't pass on the legacy of your name through your offspring. Therefore, you are dishonoring God by not pursuing marriage. And so Jesus is pushing 30 at this time, okay? He's 10 years behind the curve. And now he gets invited to a wedding. And look at the way it's said in the scripture. And I don't know if I'm reading into this or what. But when I read it, understanding the pressure that Jesus was feeling as a twenty nine-year-old or 30-year-old individual, this little passage came alive. Like, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana at Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And then it has this little thing, Jesus also was invited. Like, third-wheel Jesus, right? Jesus, single old Jesus, was also invited. And and can you imagine just the chatter that Jesus had to deal with, you know, from, from Aunt Esther and from Uncle Hezekiah and all the different people in his life? Like, hey, you know, buddy, um, you know, what, what's... 29 years old brother you know how long you're the firstborn son how long are you gonna do this like can we you know i i know ruth uh you know she's a real sweetheart and she's looking for somebody and maybe this will work out with you or you know the, all the pressures all the little things and and can you imagine now going to a wedding and some single people you love doing this right going to a wedding when everybody's gonna pressure you to get married right and you're there and you're single and your friend's getting married and he's 10 years younger than you and you're now going to the wedding like and there's this pressure, this pressure, Jesus knew the pressure, Jesus knew the pressure. And now the Gospel of John tells us at the end of this passage that, uh, that this was the first of his signs, all right? It was the first sign that Jesus did. And historians track seven different signs that Jesus gave through the Gospel of John that he was the Messiah, and this was the first one, all right? This is the first one, and so it's a big deal, you know? If you ever collected comic books, do you have any comic book collectors in, in, in the house? Come on, don't be ashamed, it's all right, I did. All right, it was only me. Okay, great. And you. All right, great. Awesome. So there's the two of us. And so uh, I used to collect comic books, and don't tell anybody, but, you know, and don't make fun of me. But, you know, it was always that the number one uh, value in a comic book was if someone first appeared, you know. First appearance of Wolverine is worth big bucks. First appearance of different individuals. First appearance of Spider-Man. The first time they appear. Now, this is the first time Jesus appears as the Messiah and the Savior. It's his first sign. So it is a pretty big deal. And God doesn't do anything by accident. If there's one thing we've learned about Jesus, he's intentional about everything. And so Jesus didn't just randomly pick a wedding to display his glory for the first time. And so what is he doing in displaying his Messiah position at a wedding? What's he trying to say there? Well, certainly he's trying to affirm marriage. He's saying this man and woman communion for all time, I agree with this. It is of the Lord. I am for marriage. And so by him providing extra wine for the marriage, certainly Jesus is saying something about his affirmation of this union. Right? I think we could all agree with that. Another thing that's interesting about this passage that I would say Jesus is doing here is if you notice when I read it, he, uh, the, the, the overseer of the wedding goes to the, bride, the groom and he says, man, you, you saved the best wine for last. Way to go. And Jesus doesn't go, actually, hold on, I provided that. It was me, not him. He messed up. He didn't bring enough wine. I brought that. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he lets all the glory be imputed, right, to the groom. You see that? This is even a shadow of the gospel here. That Christ on the cross enables you to receive his righteousness so that he can receive your sinfulness. And he does it, and he does it freely. In the same way here, the first messianic sign we see, Jesus giving freely of his bounty and not expecting any of the reward. You see that? So those are interesting little things about this, but I want to suggest that there's something else going on here. There's something else going on in this passage that has to do with your singleness or your married state, and it's very, very important for us to see this morning. Look at it with me in verse 3. It says this, when the wine ran out. When the wine ran out. Now, if you know much about biblical symbols, wine was a symbol of God's blessing, wine was a symbol of joy and overflow and favor and so the wine here ran out well where was the breakdown where was the breakdown well if you asked the groom where the breakdown was I bet he would have been like dude she invited so many stinking people to this wedding Right? I mean, we said we were going to stick to 140. There's 220 here. There's brothers and cousins and sisters I've never even heard of before drinking our wine. And you know that, you know, that Uncle Jeremiah's pounding it in the corner. It's killing us. And I tried my best to provide enough wine. And my wife just kept adding people to the guest list. Right? Maybe that's the breakdown. Or maybe the wife is like, well, you know, or the wife's dad is like, well, this guy's got a lousy job. You know, all he does is sit there and he hadn't prepared well enough for this. He didn't bring enough wine. He didn't save enough money. This guy's a deadbeat. I don't know what his problem is. He's not thinking through how much wine would be needed for a wedding like this. Where was the breakdown in the wedding? We're not sure, but what we do know is that even out of the gate, and you got to see this, even out of the gate, this marriage is hitting some bumps. Even out of the gate, this wedding is hitting some struggles and they've already gotten to a place where there's something not working, right? Something that they're running out of. Now, I want to suggest to you today that maybe, just maybe, Jesus chose this circumstance to display something specific about human relationship. See, we all have a tendency, we all have a tendency to believe that this individual is gonna complete me, right? That's what culture says. You gotta find your soulmate, you've got to find your compatible one. You gotta get online and put in all of your personality profile pieces. Come on, I know you've done it, don't lie. And then and then it's gonna pump out somebody that's a perfect fit for you because there's this magic matching that's gonna happen, and you just haven't found the magic match yet. But when you do, you'll be completely complete, and they will absolutely fulfill all of your greatest fantasies and desires, right? That's what human beings naturally seem to lean towards, that there's an individual somewhere out there who's going to complete me. And it's interesting that in this moment, Jesus at a wedding, a single man at a wedding decides to display his glory and the wine runs out. See, I would suggest to you today that there are many people here that are single who would believe the lie that marriage is just better. Marriage is just better you're 34 years old, you're here, you wish you were married when you were 21, and you're thinking, you know, God seems to be holding out on me, God seems to be keeping my perfect person from me, and what's the problem, where's the breakdown, what's going on, why is God keeping his best from me? Am I talking to anybody today? We doing okay? Is this microphone on? Doing all right? Y'all can hear me in the back, in the back, you can hear me okay? Good, all right, good, good, good. All right, all right. See, marriage is sacred. And marriage is honorable, and that's what the scripture teaches, but marriage is not eternal. Stay with me today, church. Marriage is not forever. Marriage is not eternal. Look what Jesus taught in Matthew 22. It says this, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given to marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In other words, hey, the wine is going to run out. Even if you have the best marriage in the world, it's not going to go with you for eternity. You are not, this is messes with me, going to be married to your spouse in heaven. You're not. So in other words, your wife is eternally your sister and not your spouse. So you will not stay with her in a marriage relationship in eternity. Now, that might shake you a little bit. That might mess you up a little bit. In other words, what he's saying is marriage in this life is sacred and honorable and it's pointing to something. And we'll get to that in a minute. We covered a little bit of that in week one. It's pointing to something, but it is not an eternal relationship. So is it sacred? Yes. Is it honorable? Yes. Is it eternal? No. It should be held in honor, but there are other honorable states that God has for his people, not just marriage. Look at Matthew 19. Jesus answered, the teaching does not apply to everyone, but only those to whom God has given it. For there are different reasons why men cannot marry. Some because they were born that way, others because men made them that way, and others do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let him who accept this teaching do so. Now he speaks of three different reasons, and the word cannot marry in that translation is the word eunuch, okay? And so you may understand what that is. He says really fundamentally Functionally, some people cannot have offspring because there's a physical disability, all right? We all understand that. That's one reason why an individual cannot marry and have children. Another reason, he says, is because he was made that way by men. Now, if you don't understand what that means, basically what it means is castration, okay? They got the guy, and they cut off And now he can sing like Michael can back in the day, right? So that's what he's talking about. He's saying that people in that day often did this to individuals to continue them in a path of slavery where they were no longer able to produce offspring. And so this was a way that individuals' population control and a way to enslave men and a way to cause them to be more faithful slaves and so on and on. Part of the culture was that people would do this. And so he says that's another reason why an individual would not marry. But then he gives a third reason. I don't know if you caught it. He said... Some do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In a great book uh, called uh, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, P. Scazzaro outlines two different ways that Christians can honor God in their singleness, okay? As a single, non married person, two basic ways that I can become honorable before God in my singleness. Just as a man can be honorable in his marriage, or a woman can be honorable in her marriage, so can a single person honor the Lord in a unique way through their singleness. He gives two ways, and I I agree with them. The first is a vow of celibacy. An individual that says, God, I feel that you've called me to a single life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are certain advantages to that, and I am going to, for the rest of my life, going to be single for the sake of purpose of Christ and focusing on Jesus. Now, The scripture teaches that that's a very rare calling, but there's someone maybe in the room that feels called to a single life to devote their life to God, and you need to know it is an honorable and godly decision, okay? The other reason, though, he gives us what he calls dedicated celibacy. Dedicated celibacy basically means this. I am not going to have sex as long as I am unmarried, okay? As an unmarried individual, I hope one day to be married, but I am going to honor God with my body and not be sexually intimate with another person as long as i have not made a covenant in marriage and so in other words what he's saying here is that both a vow to celibacy and both a dedication for this season to celibacy are honorable ways to exemplify or glorify god in a marriage some people here that are single are saying yeah justin that sounds great but you don't understand i'm so lonely and i'm just so empty and 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 i just want somebody to watch netflix with you know and I'm just tired of, 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 of being alone. I, I just, um, I want to be with someone. And I think that marriage can cure my loneliness. That's what Solomon thought, by the way, in the, in the Old Testament. Solomon thought that marriage, he had a big loneliness problem. And he thought that marriage would cure his loneliness, so he got married. Guess what happened? Didn't really cure his loneliness, so he got married again. and Then he got married again. And then he got married Again. And he got, Solomon got all the way up to 700 wives. And at the end of it, he said, I'm still stinking lonely. Marriage did not cure his loneliness and marriage is not going to cure your loneliness either. There's something inside of all of us that has this deep desire for intimate relationship and no human relationship can gratify that inner longing. Your loneliness will not be cured and you think, oh yes it will. It will maybe for a season or maybe for a glimpse, but deep down no human relationship can claim or satisfy fully that ache in your soul. So if you're here today and you believe that marriage is better, what I'm trying to tell you is that's a lie. If you're here today and you're saying, well, marriage will cure my loneliness, that's lie I speak to guys all the time. They say, Justin, I'm just, I'm just so passionate sexually, I think marriage is going to fix my lust problem. No, it's not. Marriage is not going to fix your lust problem. If you're here today and you think, listen, I will be faithful to my wife when I find, you know, the right one, but I'm not now. I'm addicted to porn and I'm addicted to sex with, uh, with just hooking up with who I can hook up with. But if I just got a, a, a spouse, I would be faithful. No, you wouldn't. Proverbs 27 says that the eyes of a man are never satisfied. In other words, I would suggest to you today that if you're addicted to sexual sin, addicted to pornography, friend, you are not ready for a godly relationship. You're not ready for a godly relationship, and maybe that's the reason why the Lord hasn't brought the right person, because you won't take seriously the issues that no one sees. We having fun yet? We doing okay? So if marriage isn't better, and if marriage doesn't cure my loneliness, and if marriage won't satisfy my lust problem, what is God trying to get at here in John chapter 2 when the wine runs out at the wedding? Take a look at what happens in verse 6. Check this out. He says, Now there were six stone water jars, and there were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. There's a lot we could say there, but I'm going to keep moving. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars of water, and they filled them to... Now, if you do a little math, that's 180 gallons of wine, okay? 180 gallons, approximately 900 bottles of wine that Jesus is about to make, okay? That is a significant amount of wine, right? And it's really, really good wine. And so he makes all this wine, and then look what happens in verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master, master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so he's saying, wow, this is incredible. And then it says this was the first of his signs, that Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's very important for us to understand what's happening here. If this is a messianic sign, it's not a Jesus magic trick, okay? It's not Jesus just simply seeing that there's a need for wine at the wedding and then saying, well, abracadabra, look what I can do. Bada bing, bada boom, I made some wine. Isn't that incredible? Now believe in me, that's not what's going on here. It's not just a trick. It's a sign. Now what does a sign do, right? A sign points you somewhere, doesn't it? A sign tells you that's, you know whatever, Anthony Street, that's, you know, College Street, that's where you're going. That's where you need to go. Get on the on-ramp. Here, it's a sign that is pointing to something. In other words, Jesus is saying that this wine that he is creating is a parable of himself, that the illustration that he's trying to impress upon the people, both married and single at the wedding, is that the wine of human relationship is going to run out. It's going to come to an end. In other words, there is no human relationship that Can satisfy the deep longing and calling of your heart. And if you're here today and you're intoxicated with the idea of an individual satisfying your needs, it will become a source of absolute frustration in your life because ultimate satisfaction will not be found in that relationship. No matter how glorious the wedding might be, the wine is going to run out and you got to find some new wine if you're going to be satisfied on the inside. And Jesus is saying here, see, in my mind when I preach this, kind of preparing, people clapped at that moment, but none of you clapped, which is okay. But that's all right. So, so right here what I'm saying is that Jesus is saying, I am the new one. I'm more satisfying than a man. I'm more satisfying than any sexual pleasure you can find. you got to believe that. I'm more satisfying than any sexual pleasure you can find. I'm more satisfying than all the loneliness you would wrestle with. I am the cure for your deep calling of loneliness. I've got 900 bottles of wine here. i got more than enough. I'm never going to run out. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying to you today. He's saying, listen, you got to see a single man at a wedding. When the Rhine runs out, he's making a statement about the soul of humanity. He's saying, "You need me." And so marriage is not superior and singleness is not superior, but both marriage and singleness can be leveraged by the follower of Christ to point to Jesus. Don't miss this. This is so important for your life. And so we see that a Christian marriage, right, can be a sign that points to Jesus. And this is very important. The husband embodying the love of Christ for the church loves his wife in a sacrificial way. The wife embodying the affection and commitment of the church to Jesus honors and supports her husband. And so we see that this idea of marriage Marriage. The husband says, "Listen, I could chase a thousand women, but I only pursue you for the rest of my life." What a beautiful picture! I could go after a million different girls, but I'm only going to look at you. You have now become my definition of beauty. That's the essence of marriage. You are my. Well, what if she's a little chunky? Chunky's my definition of beauty. What if she grows facial hair? Facial hair is hot, right? You are my one and only, and I'm defining beauty by you because I've made a pledge to you for all time. And if Christians would live that way, and men and women who are married would put down the porn and stop flirting with the old high school sweetheart, and stop giving yourself emotionally to the lady at work, if Christians would live that way, what it would display to a watching world is the depth of Christ's love come on, somebody. The depth of Christ's love could be displayed to a watching world. But singles have a unique advantage that that married do not have. Singleness is also a sign. And when a Christian says, I am single, and I'm not going to hook up with her and hook up with him and go here and do that, I'm not going to sleep around. Instead, I am going to walk holy, tethered to Christ in celibacy until I am married. In doing that, you are displaying a commitment to Christ that the world will say, are you kidding me? Are you serious? No one does that. And you don't do it out of some obligation to religion, you do it out of an affection to your Savior. In the same way that the husband or wife deeply roots themselves in affection to that one individual, you have the capacity in a loving, holy way to display the love of Christ to multiple individuals. And so, not having one lifetime intimate relationship, you have the opportunity to love deeply many people. And so, a sphere of friendship begins to grow around the single person who's honoring Christ, and they're able to invest and support in ways that a married person never could because of the availability that they have in singleness. Now, you don't obsess over when you're going to have kids or how many kids you're going to have because your legacy in this life is not built on your heir. Your legacy in this life is built on Christ and what he's done for you. And so just as the married person has the capacity to display the depth of Christ's love, so the single person has a unique capacity to display the breadth of Christ's love. And so we can see how people can be loved on a broad scale through the single, just as we can see how one person can be loved in a deep way through the married person, and maybe, just maybe, if singles had this vision, and marrieds had this vision, in one church, a watching world, the answer to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 would come to pass. May uh, you have strength to comprehend with all the saints, come on, stay with me, what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the of God. What I'm saying today is if that passage is ever going to come true, singles need to understand that they have a unique ability to display the breadth of Christ's love, and married have a unique ability to display the depth of Christ's love, and as we do it together, a watching world gets a glimpse of the Jesus who loves them. So what I'm telling you today is if you're here and you are single, if you are here and you are married, Jesus is the joy of every season. Jesus is the joy of every season, and I want to urge you single people, maximize this honorable season to point to the sufficiency of Jesus in all things. Maximize it. Maximize it. See, singleness is not a problem to be solved. Singleness is a gift to be opened. I said, singleness is not a problem. Some of you, you're here and you're single and you're saying, "No, I'm just." It's a problem I'm trying to solve, and that's the exact reason that you can't solve it because it's not a problem to be solved. It is a gift to be opened. I remember uh, years ago I used to play video games. I don't now because I put away childish things. By the way, but. Uh, All you 38-year-old guys who are like World of Warcraft superstars, maybe rethink your use of time. Anyways, um, I I used to play video games all the time, and I loved them. And back when I was a kid, the the coolest game that that a a boy could have in in my little sphere of of influence was uh, NBA Jam. Anybody remember NBA Jam? NBA Jam, a couple people. Okay, three of us, wow. All right, so uh, NBA Jam was a super cool game, and it was a lot of fun. And I asked my mom for NBA Jam, and I remember the, the day my birthday came around, I thought for sure I'm getting NBA Jam. And I opened it up, and it wasn't NBA Jam, it was NBA Live okay? And now you may not know the difference. I knew the difference. My mom had no clue. And so here I am, this young kid. This is one of the most selfish, spoiled moments of my childhood. I remember seeing that mom got me NBA Live instead of NBA Jam, and I was just ticked. And I remember just being angry at my birthday, like, mom, this stinks. This isn't the game I want. NBA Jam, you can do flips, and you can dunk, and it's so awesome. NBA Live, it's like, so, it's totally different. And I remember just being so upset at my mom. My mom was like, what? You know, I got you a gift. You're not happy with the gift? And I was like, no, this gift stinks. I don't want this gift. See, I rejected the gift. Now, a little time went by, and I finally opened up NBA Live, and I started playing it, and guess what I realized? It's actually cooler than NBA Jam. It was a better game. It was a cooler game, a more satisfying game, a more enjoyable game. And my mom came up to me, and she said, hey, you want me to swap out NBA Live for NBA Jam? And I said, "Uh, uh-huh, actually, Mom, I'd like to keep NBA Live because it's actually a game i like to play more. Sorry, Mom, I'm a loser. Right? I had to repent to my mom and ask for forgiveness. And what I'm trying to say here is, some of you are thinking that uh, the gift God has given you in this season, he gave you the wrong gift. Like, hey, God, you know, I was looking for MBA, I was looking to be jamming, and instead I'm not, I'm just living, you know. And so what's going on here, God? Like, I'm still single, and the biological clock is ticking. I want to have 17 kids. I don't even have a husband yet. Like, what's happening here, God? You know, how do I fix my problem of singleness? And what he's saying to you today is, why don't you open the gift I gave you? Why don't you open the gift I gave you? So who do we look to to understand singleness and how to leverage our singleness for God's glory? I would suggest to you today that we look to Jesus, that Jesus gives us a whole bunch of great uh, pieces of direction for how to use our singleness for God's glory. Because as a single man, Jesus displayed the glory of God more than any other. And so let me give you just a couple of encouragements today to the single people. And why is this important to the married people? Because as a church, we need to have a theology of both marriage and singleness and not see one as superior or one as inferior, but instead celebrate the varied graces that God gives. Amen? So this is very important. So if you want to jot these down, let me just give you a few real quick. The first is build your circles. If you're married today, I want to encourage you to build your circles. Okay, build your circles. What does that mean? Go ahead and throw that slide up there, the next slide, that little, uh, little, little graph there. Bing. So what we're talking about here, and we see Jesus do this, is you have to build your circles if you want to be honorable in this season of singleness. What does that mean? It means intimacy with God first. I want to talk to some single people here that you're like, man, I'm not ma- I want to get married to a Christian girl, and I want to have a godly life, and I want to do things right? And why can't I be married? And, and what's the matter? And, and, and honestly, you haven't even started with circle number one. You can't even spend more than five minutes focused on the scriptures and in prayer. And what I want to encourage you today is if you want to prepare yourself one day for marriage or you want to uh, feel called to an extended season of singleness, either way, now's the time to start building your circles. And that means that you start to cultivate an intimacy with God that is honest and that is real and that is true. And it will be one of the greatest preparations for your future, whether that means single or married. we see Jesus doing this, often pulling away to the Father for intimacy. Then, begin to build your inner circle. What does that mean? It's people that are close to you. Because you are single, you have the opportunity to have depth of friendship and breadth of friendship in a unique way. In other words, you can have deep relationships with multiple people, and we see Jesus doing this. He takes the twelve disciples, and he says, these twelve are my closest colleagues and friends. But then he has three, Peter, James, and John, that are the closest amongst the closest. And then even one, John, who is his best friend, that he has the closest this friendship with. And so we see Jesus has these circles of people that he is close with. And this is important too, by the way, if you're single, it's not just other single people. You notice that Jesus hung out with, with families as well. He was with Martha and Mary and Lazarus all the time. There was his mom that would come along. He was a part of families as a single man. Amen? In other words, listen, married couples invite some single people over for dinner. And single people make a dinner for some married couples and interact as both single and married within that inner circle. And then from the inner circle, you begin to interact with your local church, right? And then from your local church, you begin to interact with a broken world. And so we see Jesus building his circles. His breadth of relationship was incredibly, incredibly healthy. I want to encourage you, if you're single today, you should be working on building your circles. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is leverage your freedom. That's the next thing, leverage your freedom. Leverage your freedom. Jesus did this. Jesus leveraged his freedom as a single man. The scripture teaches clearly that if you are single, you have a unique freedom that a married person does not have. The apostle Paul says it like this. He says, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And so what he's saying is that singleness provides a unique opportunity for freedom. Don't use that freedom just to watch movies and eat chips. Use that freedom for God's glory. Do it like Jesus did. Lead ministries, travel, serve the poor, leverage that freedom in your local church to invest big. Join a servant team in Jesus' name. See how I slipped that in there? Oh, it's a gift. Thank you. Now, I want to talk just quickly to those that say, Justin, I don't feel called to be single forever. But I am single, and I want to eventually have a spouse and meet that special someone. And this is the third point for you today is for you, and it's, uh, it's this redeem dating. Dating is an ancient art form that is mostly dead. And I want to encourage you to redeem dating today. If you're here today and you feel that that you are called to be married, that God has put a desire in your heart to be married. By the way, that's not a bad desire. It's an honorable, godly desire to be married. But it's not happening right now. And maybe you've tried multiple times and it's a struggle. I want to encourage you to build those circles. I want to encourage you to leverage your freedom. But then I also want to encourage you to redeem dating. In fact, I want to initiate this morning the City Church Dating Redemption Strategy. All right? Does that sound good? The City Church Dating Redemption redemption strategy. I'm going to give you five steps, real quick here, five steps in this dating redemption strategy. We're going to hit them quick. So all the single people, come on, just uh, just get excited. I'm going to fix all your problems right now, all right? The city, the city church, no, I'm just kidding. The city church dating redemption strategy. You're going to love it, I promise. Dating redemption strategy, step one. Are you ready? Write these down. Repair and yield. Repair and, you're like, oh, that wasn't as fun as I was hoping. Repair and yield. Repair means take the broken parts of your life. If you feel God's called you to be married in the future and you're not yet married right now take the broken parts of your life and start repairing repair those scars that you have from past relationships repair your idea of dating and hooking up and all these things that are not what God would have for you not his best start repairing your 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 the, the hurt of the past start repairing those broken things with God's help and then here's the big one yield Yield to what? Yield to God's timing. Yield to God's plan. Yield to God's strategy for your life. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is you're not going to be able to access God's best as long as you glorify being married over obeying God. So you must learn to yield. And I would suggest to you today that you're not ready for marriage if you are not yielded to God. Repair and yield. Repair and yield. Repair and yield. Some of us in the room, you've just not been willing to yield. You want your agenda, your time, your plan, then you want God to bless it. And a change has to happen in your heart where you say, God, I want your plan. And if it's another decade of singleness, if it's a lifetime of singleness, I want to follow you, Jesus. Wow. Repair and yield. Number two, invite others into the process. Invite others into the process. If you're a single person and you feel like God's called you to be married at a certain time in the future, invite others into the process. Say to um, an older person who's married, say to an older person who uh, has followed Christ for a long time, say, listen, uh, I want to be married one day. Could you just be honest with me? And would you help me see the areas that you think that the day I get married are going to be a problem? Can you just tell me honestly what you see in me that you wouldn't want to marry? And hopefully they're honest with you. And you can begin to invite others into the process and start to experience some healing and some preparation. Number three, normalize and sanctify your standards. Normalize and sanctify your standards. Let me talk to the brothers real quick. Brothers, you're not going to marry a supermodel. Let me just be real. You're not that handsome. Okay? Seriously, let's just, we need to normalize the standards. I'm being serious right now. We need to start thinking a little bit different. See, some people uh, are not uh, pursuing a person because they're just not beautiful enough, right? Ladies, he might not look like the guy in your locker room picture that you had in your locker when you opened that door, and he had those incredible steely eyes and that perfect hair and all these different things. He may not look like that. He may not look like that. I want to encourage you to begin to normalize your standards physically, okay? I heard somebody say this to help me. Godliness is sexy to the godly. Godliness is sexy to the godly. In other words, there's somebody just got that. In other words, what I'm saying is that when you begin to meet someone who loves Jesus so much, there's an attraction that can begin to grow that even supersedes physical things. And I'm not saying physical things are completely unimportant, but godliness is deeply attractive to the person who is godly and loves Christ. And so pursue godliness before you pursue anything else, right? And so normalize your standards, but also sanctify your standards. In other words, and I want to talk to ladies especially here. Ladies, just because he has a pulse doesn't mean he's a man of God, right? Just because he attends church doesn't mean he's a man of God. Sanctify your standards in such a way that you're looking for someone who is honoring Jesus and loves Jesus more than he loves you. That is an individual who puts Christ at the center of everything in his life. Normalize and sanctify your standards. We're almost done today. Here's number four. This is an important one. Go on a real date. Okay? There you go. Yeah, you can clap that. Go on. What does that mean? Here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Men. Just do it, like Nike, right? Just just ask them, and don't try to make out with them after you ask. Seriously, just go on an old-fashioned, real date where you say to them, Hi, let me just walk you through it. Hi, how are you? Would you like to go on a date with me? No. Okay. Hi, how are you? Would you like... Just ask them. You're not asking them to marry you, right? You're just asking them to go on a real date. And here's something. Just blow your mind, man. Pay for it. All right? Come on, ladies. Pay for it in Jesus' name, right? Go on a real date and pay for it. And have the courage to ask them, not on a text, not on a social media, Facebook. As a human, to a human, ask them. Go on a real date. We doing okay, folks? I know that this might feel uncomfortable. It's like, dude, nobody does that anymore. Well, the whole system we're operating in right now and culture ain't really working all that well, right? So maybe we should reflect on some things we've forgotten. So repair and yield, invite others into the process, normalize and sanctify standards, go on a real date. And here's the last encouragement just from me to you, from, you know, cousin Justin, uncle Justin to you, whatever you want to look at me as today, I'm just trying to help you out. Number five, just as a word of advice, this is an important piece. If you're here today and you begin to establish a relationship and you do go on a date and there's a relationship that begins to form, right after that happens, I want to urge you to do number five, set godly expectations. Set godly expectations. In other words, man, I want to encourage you, have conversations about physical intimacy before you get physically intimate. In other words, you say to her, listen, I want to save uh, sex for marriage, and I don't know if we're going to get married or not, but here's what I want to do. I want to make sure that I honor you as my sister and as a person that is ultimately married to Christ, and I don't want to pursue you sexually. (laughs) Ha-ha. Have the courage to say that. Have the self-control to say that. In fact, I would encourage you, find another person who is older than you, who's following Christ, and say to them, listen, we are now in a dating relationship and we want to create some godly standards. Would you help us? Would you walk with us? Would you be accountable to us? Set some godly expectations. People at the church would love to help you do that. What I'm discussing today is completely countercultural. It is completely, it is a lost art form. It is something that is largely forgotten and completely broken. And people don't think this way, especially not in the Northeast, especially not in the church. They don't think this way. And I wanna urge you to consider a different way of doing singleness and a different way of pursuing godly relationship. And here's what I hope happens with our our dating redemption strategy, that in God's timing, with God's will, we embrace these five different points. You can throw them up there, these five different points. And little by little, as we repair and yield, as we, I've just been on a kick recently, as we invite others into the process, as we normalize and sanctify standards, as we go on some real dates, and as we set godly expectation, then there's going to be some exchanging profile. Ah! And people begin to make some covenants that last a lifetime. And people begin to find that person that they're going to run with. And they don't elevate that person over Jesus. And they don't Glorify that person to become more important than Christ, but as a brother and a sister in Christ, they make a lifelong commitment and they display the depth of Christ's love through their marriage. Yeah, amen. Just stand your feet with me today. Some of us are in the room and you say, you know, Justin, this is ridiculous. It's old-fashioned. It's outdated. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. It really, you know, is not the way I'm going to do things. And I'm going to do things my way. And listen, if you're here today and you're tied up in the hookup culture, you know, that your life is just who you can hook up with this weekend, who you can find and uh, who you can be with intimately and all these different things, what I want to tell you today, and I don't have to convince you of this, you already know it, is it's emptiness on the other side. It's exciting and thrilling and pleasurable for a moment, and then this cavern of emptiness and shame and guilt sets in. And if you're here today and you know that personally, I got a good word for you. God's here to heal you. He's here to heal you. He's here to heal you. Maybe you're here today and you've been through a difficult divorce. Maybe you're here today and you're so lonely and you're frustrated in your loneliness. Maybe you're here today and you're hoping that Some marriage will save you from your lust problem. I want to point you today to the sufficiency of Jesus. I want to urge you today that the wine is going to run out. No matter how perfect the relationship is, no matter how beautiful the wedding, the wine is going to run out. And you've got to turn your attention to the one who never runs dry. He's saying, I got 900 bottles for you. I got more than enough. Would you come to me? Would you just close your eyes and pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you come into the room right now? As we just make you the center, I pray that you would challenge every person here, the single person, the married person. I pray that you challenge us to think differently about relationship. God, I pray that a divine health would come into the interactions between men and women who are unmarried. I pray that this hookup culture, God, that this way of doing things, God, we would see the brokenness and the emptiness, that it does not satisfy in the way that it promises. And I would pray that, Jesus, that we would begin to see that your way of honor and seeking Christ first actually is life for us. Holy Spirit, would you come into the room today? Would you heal the person that feels empty? Would you heal the person that feels like a failure? Would you meet the person that feels lonely? jesus would you visit us this morning right now god i sense your presence come into the room right now i'm saying yes right now i'm saying yes can you just say yes to him today can you just say yes to his sufficiency can you say yes to his plan can you say yes to yielding to him right now for more information visit ourcitychurch.org